Welcome back to Corruption of Child Protective Services. I am your very humble host, David Shore. Yes, if I'm sounding a little annoying and upbeat, it's because I have information for you. Now, I know I said I would get on lawsuits from other countries. And in the next episode, and I promise it will be in the next episode, I will go over that. But I think that this episode is going to be very rewarding. The title of it is International Law and the Family. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, do you know in 1989, the United Nations... All the countries got together and decided that the rights of the child had to be discussed. And more specifically, family rights as well. It was the um, 1989 UN Commission on the Rights of the Child. Now, the summary in general was, I'm going to read some of the summary. What is the child in the absence of a family? The discussion also addressed the usually forgotten question of what is the reality of a child in the absence of a family? In such cases, would the system of protection be improved? Would the best interest of the child ever be assessed? Would there be any room for the participation of the child? Would there be anyone to listen? Would it be possible to prevent and combat discrimination? In short, would it ever be possible to address seriously the situation of these children within the framework of fundamental human rights and freedoms? Those are all good questions. All these questions are a natural encouragement to further elaboration, to further studies and discussions, and to concrete programs and strategies, both at the national level and within the framework of international cooperation. For all of them, the convention was reaffirmed as the common reference and the inspiring document. The convention is, furthermore, the most appropriate framework in which to consider and to ensure respect for the fundamental rights of all family members and their individuality. Children's rights will gain autonomy, but they will be especially meaningful in the context of the rights of parents and other members of the family. To be recognized to be respected, to be promoted. And this will be the only way to promote the status of and the respect for the family itself. So far, they're talking about family, both as individuals and as a unit. The committee expressed the hope that the debate may have played a catalyzing role in the future consideration and action in this important issue. The follow-up 
to be insured in the future, both by the committee and all other partners in the implementation of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, will contribute to further developing the important conclusions of this general thematic discussion. In view of the contributions made and the importance of the realities considered, the committee decided to ensure a follow-up to its general discussion and prepare to that purpose a working paper to be discussed during its eighth session scheduled to take place in January 1995. So, even back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, they were actually talking about this, about the rights of the family, rights of the children, rights of the parents. As I go into this, you'll see that the United Nations had nothing but the family's best interests at heart. But how many countries have ratified the convention? Everyone, hold on to your butts. Because if you guessed who it was, let me read this and see if you're right. The Convention on the Rights of the Child is the most rapidly and widely ratified human rights treaty in history, with 194 countries as states' parties. The only countries that have not ratified the treaty are Somalia, South Sudan, and Da 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 da! The United States. Anyone shocked? Why hasn't the United States ratified the convention? Anyone want to take a wild guess on this one, or should I? You know, I'm just going to read it because after all, you're tuning into my podcast, and I do appreciate it. So. Let's see why hasn't the United States ratified the Constitution. Of the three countries that have not ratified the Constitution, the Convention, sorry, only the United States has not stated an intention to do so. U.S. Now, I'm telling you this right now. U.S. officials and lawmakers, as well as some organizations, have made various arguments against ratifying the treaty. I wonder if one of those organizations is the Department of Child Services or Child Protective Services. I'm just guessing. Some assert that since U.S. laws are already in compliance with most elements of the convention, there is no need to ratify the treaty. However... U.S. laws and practice violate the convention in important ways. <gasps> wow. For instance, the U.S. still allows the courts to sentence people who have committed crimes before the age of 18 to life in prison with no possibility of parole. And exemptions in U.S. child labor laws allow children as young as 12 to be put to work in agriculture for long hours and under dangerous conditions in violation of the convention's prohibitions on the economic exploitation of children. While the U.S. should end these practices, they are not a barrier to ratifying the convention. Others have contended that the convention is 
Thai family and that ratifying it would undermine the freedom of parents to raise and discipline their children. As we go on further, you're going to find out that's a bunch of bullshit. It's just another way in which CPS can control the family. These opponents have characterized the convention as a blank check for government intervention within the home. Obviously, they haven't read the document. In fact, the convention refers repeatedly to the rights and responsibilities of parents to raise and provide guidance for their children. Excuse me? So, in other words, oh, it's anti-family. Oh, it'll have government interference. That's what we have now. We have an agency that uses exigent circumstances as a reason to take your children. That they say it's in the best interest of the child or children. Truth of the matter is, if these laws were put into place, they would be held accountable and they don't want to be. But then again, how many of you already knew this? Ah, what are the convention's optional protocols? Ah, let's see what happens. The convention has three optional protocols that were negotiated by countries after the treaty was adopted and have this, the status of independent treaties. The optional protocols protocol on the participation of children in armed conflict adopted in 2000 deals primarily with child soldiers and sets 18 as the minimum age for direct participation in hostilities and for any conscription or forced recruitment into armed forces the optional protocol on the sale of children child pornography and child prostitution was also adopted in 2000 the optional protocol on the communications procedure for filing complaints under the convention was adopted in 2011. That means that if the United States got on board with this and it was found out that a government agency was profiting off the sale of children that could be held accountable, that if someone in the government or anyone was engaging in either child pornography or child prostitution, they would be subjected under international law as well as U.S. law. Anyone see a problem with this? They can be held accountable for that in both international and U.S. law. Now, why would they not want that? I can think of a few good reasons. I could give you one right now. Jeffrey Epstein. Harvey Weinstein. What about Bill Clinton? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So if we were under that law and families brought it to light... All of a sudden, the United States would be known as the one's biggest human rights violators. And I think most of the world would actually agree. When we come back, I will come and say what are, what should governments do to better fulfill the rights of children. And I'll go over a case that's 
currently in the state of Indiana. I'll go more into detail on that. We will be right back. Welcome back. Well, this convention on the rights of the child goes more into detail, goes actually into the family and how the family can be protected, both as individuals as well as a unit. And the United States didn't want to adopt that. Maybe it's because the higher-ups, the people that are in state care and the ones that are taking care of the ones that are in state care would all be held accountable that they could not hide behind immunity they couldn't hide behind certain rules or administrative rules or whatever that they would be held accountable that they would have to be arrested charged tried and either convicted or acquitted. Also that families would have to be staying together and not removed. And if they do, it would be for a short period of time. Nothing in this indicated that they were getting bonuses or anything. They would be not be compensated. But let's go on. What should governments do to better fulfill the rights of children? The rights of millions of children are still violated on a daily basis. <laughs> wow, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because they it's the truth. Governments should take several key steps to fulfill their international obligations to children. Review national legislation to ensure that it conforms with the convention. For example, by ensuring that child labor, child marriage, female genital mutilation, and all forms of violence against children are strictly prohibited. I think they're also including if they're in state's care. Ensure accountability for violations of children's rights by establishing complaint procedures and investigation mechanisms and ensuring that abusers, whether parents, Teachers, employers, police, or other officials, including CPS, are fairly held responsible. Oh, wow. Expand practices with proven track records for increasing school enrollment and improving children's health. For example, programs that provide direct assistance to the poorest families. Wow, direct assistance to the poorest families. In other words, help them get out of poverty. Wow. Now, that's a novel idea. Why don't we give them the tools to get themselves out of the situation so that way they're not in that situation? Identify marginalized and vulnerable children who are being excluded from school health and other services or need special protection including girls children with disabilities children from ethnic and racial minorities migrant children and those living in conflict areas 
and adopt concrete and specialized plans and policies to ensure that these children have access to schooling and other services and are protected from the effects of armed conflict and other violence and abandon policies and practices that are proven ineffective and damaging to children, including the overuse of detention and institutionalization, and make a commitment to use community and family-based care models that are both cheaper and more effective. Sounds like they wanted the community as a whole, as Hillary Clinton says, it takes a village to raise a child. Oh my goodness, you mean to tell me that we as a family and as a community should help one another out? Is that possible? Does that mean that what Hillary Clinton said was true? Then if that's the case, how come in 1999 when they amended it, why didn't they do anything about it? kinds of makes you stop and think. Things that make you go, hmm. Well, here's the meat and potatoes of what I have been talking about. The Convention on the Rights of the Child. Adopted and open for signature, ratification, and accession by General Assembly Resolution 44-25 of 20 November 1989. Entry into force to September 1990 in accordance with Article 49. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because this law could, this right here, could have actually helped families. Now, I know you're probably going to wonder, well, how can this help? Well, you know something? I could go into the preamble. I could go into all of this. But you know something? I want you to hear a few of the articles. Few the parts that actually will benefit you. How about Article 1? For the purposes of this present convention, a child means every human being below the age of 18 years, unless under the law applicable to the child, majority is attained earlier. Okay. Now, how about this? Article 3. And all actions concerning children, whether undertaken by public or private social welfare institutions, courts of law, administrative authorities, or legislative bodies, the best interest of the child shall be a primary consideration. You're always hearing that in the best interest of the child, and the best interest of the child. You're starting to see a pattern going on here? State parties undertake to ensure the child such protection and care as is necessary for his or her well-being, taking into account the rights and duties of his or her parents, legal guardians, or other individuals legally responsible for him or her, and to this end shall take all appropriate legislative and administrative measures. State parties shall ensure that the institutions, services, and facilities responsible for the care or protection of children shall conform with the standards established by competent authorities, particularly in the areas of safety, health, and the number of suitable suitability of their staff, as well as competent supervision. Okay. 
Hopefully they're talking about the child and not CPS because competent supervision. It's like military intelligence, contradiction in terms. Article, let's look at Article 5. States parties shall respect the responsibilities, rights, and duties of parents or where applicable the members of the extended family or community as provided for by local custom legal guardians or other persons legally responsible for the child to provide in a manner consistent with the evolving capacities of the child appropriate direction and guidance in the exercise by the child of the rights recognized in the present convention. Article 6 is an important one. I'm going to go over it. There's only two parts. States parties recognize that every child has an inherent right to life. States parties shall ensure to the maximum extent possible the survival and development of the child. So far, have you seen why the United States would not want this? They don't want to listen to the child. It's not in the best interest of the child. It's in the best interest of the state. Why else would Hillary Clinton want to give bonuses to CPS social workers for keeping the child out of the home? Okay, let's look at Article 8. States party undertake to respect the right of the child to preserve his or her identity, including nationality, name, and family relations as recognized by law without unlawful interference. Where a child is illegally deprived of some or all of the elements of his or her identity, state parties shall provide appropriate assistance and protection with a view to reestablishing speedily his or her identity. So in other words, Parents cannot take a child, change the child's name, maybe even change the child's gender just to hide that child from the other parent. According to this, that would be illegal. Wow. You see how much rights you actually would have under this? And I've just gotten started. When we come back, We're going to see further how this goes. And when I read this the first time, it floored me. And I'm still wondering why the United States would not ratify this. And towards the end, I'll give you some instructions on how to go about getting them to ratify this. And trust me, it's going to take work. This has been around since 1989. So about 40 years. So we'll, when we come back, we'll go further into different articles. And trust me, it's going to get interesting. We'll be back. Welcome back. Well, let's continue on. This next article in this is going to really be interesting for you. Article 9, Section 1. States 
parties shall ensure that a child shall not be separated from his or her parents against their will, except when competent authorities subject to judicial review determine in accordance with applicable law and procedures that such separation is necessary for the best interest of the child. Such determination may be necessary in a particular case such as one involving abuse or neglect of the child by the parents or one where the parents are living separately and a decision must be made as to the child's place of residence. Let's go over that one again because I know it probably is very interesting to you. States, parties shall ensure that a child shall not be separated from his or her parents against their will, except when competent authorities subject to judicial review determine. Let me read that part over again. I know you're probably going, what? It says, when competent authorities subject to judicial review determine in accordance with applicable law and procedures, that such separation is necessary for the best interests of the child. Such determination may be necessary in a particular case, such as one involving abuse or neglect of the child by the parents, or one where the parents are living separately and a decision must be made as to the child's place of residence. I'd like to bring something up if you haven't already noticed. At no time does it say exigent circumstances. It says that such separation is necessary for the best interest of the child. Such determination may be necessary in a particular case, such as one involving abuse or neglect of the child by the parents. There was no such thing as exigent circumstances. So in other words, they could not use exigent circumstances. They could put it under, well, it's abuse of the child. They would have to prove that abuse occurred. Not just because they say, well, exigent circumstances. Kind of notice now why the United States did not want to ratify this. In any proceedings pursuant to paragraph one of the present article, All interested parties shall be given an opportunity to participate in the proceedings and make their views known. My goodness. So in other words, they would have to have a hearing to determine if abuse occurred. If they can't prove abuse, it goes towards the family, not towards the government. Wow. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Let's go on. Paragraph three. States parties shall respect the right of the child to be separated from one or both parents to maintain personal relations and direct contact with both parents on a regular basis, except if it is contrary to the child's best interests. So it would not be determined by CPS but by the courts. And the courts, it sounds like the courts would have to go strictly by this. Paragraph four, where such separation results from an action initiated by a state party, 
such as the detention, imprisonment, exile, deportation, or death, including death arising from any cause while the person is in the custody of the state, of one or both parents, or of the child. That state party shall, upon request, provide the parents, the child, or, if appropriate, another member of the family with the essential information concerning the whereabouts of the absent members of the family unless the provision of the information would be detrimental to the well-being of the child. State parties shall further ensure that the submission of such a request shall of itself entail no adverse consequences for the persons concerned. So in other words, CPS has no say in this that it would be determined if it would be detrimental or not. And how would they determine that? Well, chances are probably a doctor. They would have to see if the child could actually handle seeing a parent in prison. Or this is still not anti-family, at least not to my knowledge. Let's go to Article 10. In accordance with the obligation of states' parties under Article 9, Paragraph 1, applications by a child or his or her parents to enter or leave a state party for the purpose of family reunification shall be dealt with by states' parties in a positive, humane, and expeditious manner. State parties shall further ensure that the submission of such a request shall entail no adverse consequences for the applicants and for the members of their family. So if you wanted to apply for reunification, you apply through the state, then they make the determination. Let's go on to Article Paragraph 2. A child whose parents reside in different states shall have the right to maintain on a regular basis, save in exceptional circumstances, personal relations, and direct contacts with both parents. Towards that end, and in accordance with the obligation of states' parties under Article 9, Paragraph 1, states' parties shall respect the right of the child and his or her parents to leave any country, including their own, and to enter their own country. The right to leave any country shall be subject only to such restrictions restrictions as are prescribed by law and which are necessary to protect the national security, public order, ordre public, public health or morals or the rights and freedoms of others and are consistent with the other rights recognized in the present convention. Sounds like so far. They look at what the child wants. If the child wants to see mommy and daddy, the child can see mommy and daddy. They do everything they can to keep the child, the mother, and the father together. They don't separate them. Hear that, Miss Stigden? What you've been doing has been a violation of this. But you don't see it that way because we have not ratified this document. If we had, you'd be up a shit creek without a paddle. And I don't care if you like my language or not. 
let's see. Here we are. Now, you know, we have the right, the freedom of expression. This one, Article 13 says the right of the child shall have the right to freedom of expression. This right shall include freedom of freedom to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers, either orally in writing or in print, in the form of art, or through any other media of the child's choice. The exercise of this right may be subject to certain restrictions, but these shall only be such as are provided by law and are necessary. A, for the respect of the rights or reputations of others, or B, for the protection of national security or of public order or of public health or morals. So, you know, they have limitations just like we do as adults. And I, I'm perfectly all right with that. If the child wants to express him or herself through art, through dance. You see it on another show all the time. TV shows all the time. Don't restrict them. But also show them that, hey, there are certain boundaries. things you can and cannot say. Now, here's one. When we come back, I'll go over an article. And this one, well... I'll leave it up to you. But I think that it would be up to the parent to decide. But I will talk about it and we'll go from there. Okay? We will be back. And we're back. Upon further review, well, I'm going to read it to you. And I think you will agree this is a family issue, not a CPS or government issue. Article 15, paragraph 1. States, parties, recognize the rights of the child to freedom of association and to freedom of peaceful assembly. They have that right. Paragraph 2. No restrictions may be placed on the exercise of these rights or other than those imposed in conformity with the law and which are necessary in a democratic society in the interests of national security or public safety, public order, the protection of public health or morals, or the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. So... As long as they do not violate any of those, it's okay to, you know, you can peacefully assemble. Our Constitution clearly states it. Article 16. No child shall be subjected to arbitrary or unlawful interference with his or her privacy, family, home, or correspondence, nor to unlawful attacks on his or or her honor and reputation. Paragraph 2. The child has the right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. Wow. Now, before I go on, I did say I was going to do this, and so here it is. Now, 
This is from Mary Beth Bonaventura. She's the former Department of Child, Indiana Department of Child Services director. It says Bonaventura stepped down effective December 27th, 2017. It says that Bonaventura said she's been stripped of power to run DCS for the past 11 months and that the governor's office selected Eric Miller to be chief of staff, despite Miller having no welfare experience. Miller helped run Holcomb's campaign. Kind of wonder how he got that job. Quote, the current chief of staff has engineered the hiring of his choices, driven out of driven out career professionals, engaged in bullying subordinates, created a hostile work environment, exposed the agency to lawsuits, overridden my decisions, been brazenly insubordinate, and made cost-cutting decisions without my knowledge or regard for the consequences, Bonaventure said in the the letter. I am truly the DCS director in name only. The current chief of staff with the position and authority he has been given by your office is the greatest threat to this agency and child welfare. Wow. Now, going on further, she was in her letter, Bonaventura also alleges the Child Support Bureau, a division within DCS, is on the quote-unquote verge of collapse due to antiquated technology. Quote, the collapse will affect not only DCS, but the prosecutors, even non-custodial parents in Indiana that pay child support, and even child and custodial parent that receives child support. Read the letter. With, quote, with no alternative plan for modernizing child support, the administration risks a financial crisis for millions of Hoosiers, Hoosier families as the collapse of ISETs will stop ordinary child support payments from getting to children. Bonaventura said she worked hard to develop relationships with foster parents, child placing agencies, and residential treatment facilities. However, she alleges the new administration is undermining that work. Let me mention the ones she said she worked closely with. Foster parents, child placing agencies, and residential treatment facilities. Kind of notice what she left out. Hey, Miss Bonaventura, if you're listening, you benefited and you profited off of the Adoption and Safe Families Act. The only reason why you're bitching is because they cut the budget so you can't get as many bonuses. So children would actually stay in the home where the parents could actually get the help. Probably you were one of those who were screaming the loudest. No, we can't ratify the 1989 convention. No, because if we do, then that means international law would prevail. And if it prevails, and I'm sorry if I'm studying. It's just gotten me so mad. Things like this should not be happening. Even countries that ratified it. They're still violating it. 
You know what countries I'm talking about. Article 20. And wow, this is really interesting because of the lawsuits that's going on. Paragraph 1 of Article 20 says, A child temporarily or permanently deprived of his or her family environment or in whose own best interest cannot be allowed to remain in the environment shall be entitled to special protection and assistance provided by the state. In other words, yeah, the state has a child. The state has to take better, real good care of that child. That doesn't mean that you have a CPS social worker that decides to get his jollies and decide, hey, this little child's not going to say anything, and I'm going to do something. And if the child says anything, I'm going to say the child is lying. That's why the lawsuits are going. That's why sexual abuse is happening six or seven times higher than the, than if they were out of the out of the state's care. Paragraph two: States parties shall, in accordance with their national laws, ensure alternative care for such a child. Paragraph three: Such care could include inter-ally foster placement, kaf, kafala, or is of Islamic law, adoption, or if necessary, placement in suitable institutions for the care of children. When considering solutions, due regard shall be paid to the desirability of continuity in a child's upbringing and to the child's ethnic, religious, cultural, and linguistic background. So when the child is placed someplace, it has to fit what the child was raised with. The family environment. And it's anti-family. Anyone else notice a pattern here? Article 21. And this one is for adoption. States party that recognize and or permit the system of adoption shall ensure that the best interest of the child shall be the paramount consideration and they shall a ensure that the adoption of a child is authorized only by competent authorities who determine in accordance with applicable law and procedures and on the basis of all pertinent and reliable information that the adoption is permissible in view of the child's status concerning parents relatives and legal guardians and that if required the persons concerned have given their informed consent to the adoption on the basis of such counseling as may be necessary b recognize that inner country adoption may be considered as an alternative means of child care if the child cannot be placed in a foster or an adoptive family or cannot in any suitable manner be cared for in the child's country of origin c ensure that the child concerned by inter-country adoption enjoys safeguards and standards equivalent to those existing in the case of national adoption. D. Take all appropriate measures to ensure that in inter-country adoption, the placement does not result in improper financial gain for those involved in it. Hear that, Ms. Stigden? E. 
promote, where appropriate, the objectives of the present article by concluding bilateral or multilateral arrangements or agreements and endeavor within this framework to ensure that the placement of the child in another country is carried out by competent authorities or organs. Hmm. So, it sounds like everyone had to be involved in the adoption process. That signing away the parents' rights, the parents have to be involved in order for the child to be adopted out. Not, oh, well, it's in the best interest of the child and the judge has got that, his pen. Okay, I'm going to, okay, and they're signing away parents' rights and they're not even there. What would happen if all of a sudden they actually ratified this? The courts then would have to have both parents in there. And if both or one did not agree, the adoption couldn't go through. That they would have to do in the best interest of the child, return the child to the parents if the parents did everything they were supposed to. As you can see, we're going to go more in depth in the next episode. But you're starting to see that the laws should benefit you. And yet, as you can see, it benefits in the best interest of the state. Because this here, they're not even supposed to profit off of it. Get up to $1 million CPS gets for adopting out a child. No wonder they didn't want that. They couldn't get their bonuses. Well... We'll return with another episode. And like I said, I will be going deeper into this. And when you hear more rights under this, and what's the best way you can get this ratified? Whatever state you're in, see who your representatives, every senator, every congressman, or congresswoman, flood their emails, flood their regular mails, flood, call every single day. Make it your life's work to have them ratify the 1989 United Nations Commission Convention on the Rights of the Child. Tell them it is family-oriented, it is not anti-family, and it should be ratified immediately. Because it is your family is not theirs. Force them to do that or tell them. Tell them this year if they don't do it, you're going to vote them out. After this election, if they don't do it, tell them in the next election you're going to vote them out. You're going to find out when they go for re-election and you will vote them out. You hold their feet to the fire. Get it done. Get it passed. And for those in countries like Canada, Costa Rica, Ireland, and others. Document everything. Make sure if you can videotape them, videotape them violating international law. Send all that documents along with a letter to the United Nations. Hold them accountable. Hold them accountable for every single article. Make sure 
that everyone knows. It's your family, not the government. This is David Shore for Corruption of Child Protective Services.